All right, so like I said last week, we are going to, we just were able to do verses 1 through 6 in Psalm 19, and we're, today we're going to finish that psalm and look at the verses 7 and following. And before I do, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, your word truly is a treasure, um, and I want us all to truly recognize what a treasure it is, what it means to have the inerrant word of God in our hands, um, copies of your word based upon the original text that you inspired, uh, given to us by faithful men and women who have worked hard to preserve your word, and you have used that providentially to supply us with a word that is true and accurate and trustworthy and reliable and well-preserved. And uh, God, I do ask for your blessing upon today. So much of what I'm going to say today is foundational to our faith, and without it, we will be ever tossed to and fro with doubt, with uncertainty, with uh, inability to make clear uh, convictional decisions about what to think about you and about our life and about what to do. So I just ask God that your spirit would root deep in our hearts the truth about the nature of your written word, that we would see scripture for what it is and that it would serve to deeply bless our spiritual lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I alluded to in my prayer, this issue of the nature of God's word is it's indispensable in our Christian lives. Just, it's utterly indispensable, so indispensable that actually after we go through the Psalms, the next plan for teaching is to go through a uh, section on bibliology. You know how we went through pneumatology? And I basically gave you a master's level course in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to do, though it will be shorter and more succinct and a little more concise. We're going to do a uh, theological study of the doctrine of Scripture, and that will last for about 20 or so weeks, and we will look at all the various important attributes of Scripture. It's inerrancy, it's inspiration. We'll look at the doctrine of revelation. We'll talk about how Scripture's been preserved. We'll talk about the authority of Scripture. We'll talk about how we can know that it is inerrant, and all these various things. Why? Why spend time doing that? Well, because if you doubt this word, if you doubt that this is a trustworthy word, you doubt that you have God's word, you wonder what is God's word and is there things in here that are not God's word? Do we have all of God's word? Are there things that we're missing that should be in here? Uh, should we be reading the Book of Mormon? Things like that. Uh, if you're unsure about this word, that's going to inevitably affect your spiritual life. How can we have a walk in relationship with the Lord how can we be clear and certain about uh, the way things are and about who God is and about how to be saved and how to live in light of our salvation if we are unsure of the biblical text? It's a really basic conundrum and can be solved rather easily by turning to Scripture, particularly Psalm 19, and absorbing and hearing and learning and receiving exactly what Scripture says about its own nature. God wants us to have an unshakable confidence in His written Word. And the reason I say written Word is because that's what we're dealing with in Scripture. 
And because I want us to see his written word as no less authoritative, no less sure than his spoken word. Now, he has spoken uh, to his people. For example, in Israel, he spoke to his people. And we have uh, a record of his speaking. We have uh, uh, several texts that say, Thus saith the Lord. And we have, uh, we're confident that we don't have everything that he said in Scripture. He said a lot of things to Israel that, that did not need to be written down. But a lot of what he did say is written down. And so I want to be careful to make... Uh, to not make any kind of distinction between God's spoken word and God's written word as though they are different in terms of their authority or their certainty. They are not. God has revealed himself to us, as we saw in uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. He's revealed himself to us in the creation, and he's revealed himself to us in his word. And I just step back for a moment, and you, you think about the big questions that people ask the big questions of life, right? Uh, where did we come from? These are the philosophical questions that have uh, stumped uh, men of all ages. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's wrong with us? What's the purpose of life? Uh, how do I know what is right and what is wrong? These are the big questions. This is what, all those questions are basically what make up the study of philosophy for the last several thousand years. And what if, just to speak hypothetically, to, to move the conversation along, what if you had a word from God that was trustworthy, a word from the creator of the universe that was trustworthy, true, without error, that told you the answer to all of those questions? What if you had that? And what if you could open a book and know that you had truth in relation to those questions? Well, of course, it's almost odd to ask it that way, but I ask it that way to get us to step back and to really begin to ponder what we do have in the Bible. People are, in a sense, looking for God's Word. Now, they don't say it that way, but the whole pursuit of those philosophical questions I just, meant, or just mentioned are an indication that man is seeking after the answer to the questions that really matter. The problem is, is they don't ever land here. Why? Well, because, as Scripture reveals, we have a natural aversion to the truth. When it really comes down to it, we're not really seeking after the truth. We're seeking after what suits us, ultimately. Which is why when you come to Scripture and it hits you head-on with your sin and the, the nature of your depravity and the requirement of repentance, and the need to turn back to God away from your sin and to repent from, of that which you love the most, namely your sin, and to turn to a holy God. And, and that the way to do that is to, to come to God through a crucified Savior. All that's very offensive. And so Scripture is not where people land. They land elsewhere, either in other religions, other philosophical frameworks that s seem to satisfy the intellectual pursuit of truth. But I just want us to consider, just kind of frame it that way, what if you did have a word from the Creator that was sure and told you exactly what you needed to know about those, those major issues of life? Well, in fact, that's precisely what we do have. And the Bible is replete with statements about its own nature. And this is just a small sampling of them, actually. Psalm 19 is an important passage, but it's not the only passage in the Bible that speaks about the nature of Scripture. 
Uh, before we talk about it, though, I do want to mention something that's quite remarkable in the life of Israel. Okay, remember, we're reading Psalm 19 in its context where David is the author. He is a king in Israel around 1000 BC. Uh, he had been, uh, he is um, the second in the line of kings. Saul was first, his son Solomon will be third. And up to that point, Israel had experienced remarkable events in their history. Most remarkable up to that point would have been the exodus from Egypt. From that point on, God is uh, revealing himself to his people. And what you find as you study uh, Moses' writings is that the written word is absolutely central to Israel's life, religiously, politically, and their whole identity. And I just want us to hear this in the text itself, because I find it quite reassuring, reassuring with regard to God's intention in giving Scripture. Okay, why did He give? Is God, does God really care about the written word? Does God really care about writing? Was it His intention always to have something written down for His people? And I think that's an important question to ask ourselves. Okay, and, and as you ask yourself, you find in... Uh, the Pentateuch, Moses' first writings, you have just multiple, multiple statements that indicate that God, that central to God dealing with his people is a written word. So just, just a number of texts. I'm not going to stop and explain most of them. I just want to kind of give you a, a load of evidence to kind of create an avalanche of conviction, okay, about the centrality in God's plan with his people particularly Israel at this point, but then I think that you can carry that on into the New Covenant to see that it has always been God's plan to give His people a written word and that it is absolutely central to their life and identity as His people. And I just think that is pure gift. I mean, if you think about the, the wisdom of God in giving us a written word, We've talked about this before a little bit, and we'll talk about it again when we do the Doctrine of Scripture. But you just think about the advantages of having a written word, right? It's fixed. You can be like Jesus, who always, when it came to theological or ethical disputes, what did Jesus do? He said, have you not read? Have, is it not written? Or it is written, right? Because he could, re he could refer back to a fixed standard, a fixed text. We can dispute, right? What solves that dispute? We can go back to a fixed standard, okay? Uh, that that uh, text can be passed around. It can be distributed more widely than oral tradition. It can be distributed more accurately than oral tradition because now it's written down and you have a fixed standard and you can compare. One of the reasons why we're able to get back to such an, an accurate text is because though there are multiple copies of Greek manuscripts, there's not as many as Hebrew, and there's a reason for that. We'll explain it in the Doctrine of Scripture. Make sure to come back in a few weeks. Uh, but the, uh, even though we have a number of Greek manuscripts, we're able to take all of those, and we're to able to compare them through the, the study and discipline of textual criticism and be able to get back to that original text. Because there, there are so many, God has made sure to preserve His Word in, in that way. Um, but... So even, even with that wide distribution of, 
multiple different manuscripts, we are able to take those. That, then it, that in itself is a gift to be able to take all of those and make sure that we can get back to an original uh, text. So I, to, to get back to my original point here, I just want us to see, and not only see, but to feel the weight of this truth that central to God dealing with his people, central to God's plan of redemption, is to provide his people with a written word. Okay, so listen to this. I'm just going to rattle these off. Okay, Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I may utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 24, 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So you got write, you have book, you have read. Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Exodus 31, 18. Talking about tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Uh, 32.15, written again, these tablets of stone. Exodus 34.1, the Lord said to Moses, cut uh, for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablet. So you remember God writes the instructions on that first tablet. Moses comes down. He sees the whole nation of Israel engaging in idolatry. He is angry uh, with a righteous anger, probably tinged with some unrighteousness, as we, we find out later. Moses uh, tended to, to get angry and, and wasn't always fully righteous. But in this case, seeing the idolatry, knowing he'd just spoken with God, we can assume that, that he is likely acting with righteous anger, and he throws down these uh, commandments that, God had, that had, God had written down on these stone tablets. And God says, okay, we're going to write them again, all right? We're going to make new ones. We're not going to just, oh, I guess that's okay. You don't really need, we're just going to depend on oral tradition from this point on, right? No, you're going to write it down again. Um, Exodus 34, 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Deuteronomy um, 10, 12, is re, or 10, 2, is, re, is just a repeat of Exodus 34, 1, rewriting the, the law on these stone tablets. When you get to Deuteronomy 7, 8, 17, 18, I love this verse. There's in anticipation that there's going to be a, a king in Israel someday. And that's an, even an interesting study in and of itself because asking for a king later in Israel's history was something that they had done sinfully. But nevertheless, God is preparing that Israel will eventually have a king. And what was the king supposed to do? What was the most important, one of the most important things he was supposed to do as he sat on his throne? Listen to this, Deuteronomy 17, 18. And when he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the little the Levitical priest. And I should have read on to verse 19. I don't have it here, but then it goes on to say, and he should read it every single day so that his heart won't be raised up against his brothers. Okay? So actually, you have precedent for daily Bible reading here in, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17, the 18, the, the, pre, uh, the king himself was to, it says, write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So I tend to take that as that he was supposed to do that and then get it approved by the priests. 
Now, there are times when it talks about the king doing something, and what it meant was is that he's having someone else do it. Here it seems like actually he was supposed to write it, then it was supposed to be approved by the priest, so that he would always have an approved copy of the scriptures that he was to read all the time, so that he would know what he's supposed to do in Israel, and so that his heart wouldn't be raised up against his brothers. Um, and interesting, it needs to be approved by the Levitical priests. What does that tell you? There's other copies, but what does it tell you about the copying process in Israel? There's proofreading, which means they're concerned about getting back to that original standard. They want to preserve the original text. You can't just throw together some sort of uh, loose, the message uh, translation and expect for the Levitical priests to approve it. No, no, no. What they're approving is that you've gotten it right. Yes, you've copied the words right from that original text. Okay? So even here you have implicitly the idea of an original standard that, that as you were copying the text, you needed to remain tethered to. Okay? They're concerned about accuracy. And wouldn't you be concerned about accuracy if you knew it was from the very creator that you were receiving the word? Uh, that's one of the reasons, preview, make sure to come back in a few weeks, one of the reasons that uh, you don't, one of, the reason, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why you don't have as many Hebrew manuscripts as you do Greek manuscripts is because in Israel, the copying process was a lot more careful than it was in the New Testament uh, copying process. In the New Testament, is all about speed and efficiency. You've got to get this thing, we've got, got, we got to get this stuff out and get it around. Um, in, in Israel, it was a very careful copying process, so you didn't produce as many documents as you otherwise would. But that's fine in terms of textual criticism because they were, you might say, a higher quality of copy than, than just trying to spin off uh, a, a burst of manuscripts. So as, we'll study, as we study the preservation of Scripture, we'll learn that, the, that there are not as many Hebrew Old Testaments Orig uh, manuscripts as there are Greek. But in both cases, you have, in the case of the, the Greek, you have so many that you can use those now to get back to an original text, and in the case of the Hebrew, you have few, but fewer, but you have more high-quality manuscripts so you can get back to the original text. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 27.3, You shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. 28.58, uh, Deuteronomy 28.58, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. They're responsibility, responsible for doing everything that the law commanded. And it was written down. Now, what does this imply here? this commandment to do all, well, it implies that you're able to identify all of God's commandments, which implicitly guarantees an accuracy in the text. God assumes that his people will know exactly what to do. God, God assumes that his people will be able to identify exactly what his word is so he, they can obey it. So again, even these sentences here imply that God will preserve His Word and enable His people to identify exactly where it is, and He puts it in a book so it's easy to find. Uh, 29, 21, 
Oh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. So here, now it's God, is, uh, Moses, God through Moses is starting to warn the people about all the, the curses that were written in the book of the covenant, the book of the law. And the Lord will single him out of all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. 29-27 is a similar uh, passage. Both promises and curses were promised in the book of the law, and God is regularly referring back to those as he is dealing with the disobedience of his people. These, these commandments, these promises, these curses, they were fixed in a written text that could be referred back to and would be referred back to by the prophets over Israel's history saying, you have violated this and this and this and this and this. Now, how could they do that? Well, they could do that because God had given them a written word. Writing is so important to God uh, when it comes to providing his people with a revelation. 31.19, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. That is Deuteronomy 31. Let's see here. And there you have it. And then Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. It's important that it be written down. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Joshua 1.8, God commands Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. So then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Uh, Joshua 8.31-32, do all that's commanded, that's written in the book of the law of Moses. Joshua 8.34, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Joshua 23, 6, Therefore be strong and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right or neither to the, to the left. When David died, he charged his son Solomon. Oh, sorry, this is a good one. 1 Samuel 10, 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one of them to his home. Uh, which is why people believe Samuel wrote Samuel. Um, David's charge to Solomon. This is when David was about to die and Solomon was going to take the throne. When David's time was to die drew near. This is 1 Kings 2. He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Okay, now, as it turns out, that's just a sampling. Uh, I just, out of curiosity, I just went through, uh, this is a while back I did this, went through and just looked up written, write, book, just anything related to writing in the Old Testament and found that the written word is central to God's dealing with his people. 
central. A written document has always been central to the life of God's people. So again, these are things that we'll cover uh, in our study in bibliology in our, in our next, say, say, quarter or next semester. I don't know, should I break these up in semesters or quarters? Probably not, because then it'll make you feel like you're back in school. and Then you won't want to come on Sunday morning, and that would make me sad. But, uh, but in our next section, we will talk about how uh, God has given uh, his word, it is the written document, the written word is central, so that when, central to the life of Israel, so that when you come to the apex of redemption, people ask, okay, Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, uh, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good word. Um, but that's referring to the Old Testament. How do we know that these New Testament documents are, are legit? And there's a lot of reasons why, and we'll talk about those, but one thing is that you can have an expectation. If, if writing is so central to God dealing with his people, you can have an, a legitimate expectation that when the apex of redemption comes, namely the coming of the very Son of God to die for his people, you can expect that there would be some documents to follow that revelation, that God would provide some writing for his people to explain the significance of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. And so you should just have a, an expectation that once that happens, there is going to be a flood of revelation, and that's precisely what we get. We get 27 uh, books, gospels, letters in the New Testament. Why? Well, because that's the way God has always dealt with his people, by giving them a written revelation. So on the sheer basis of expectation, we should be anticipating a new covenant set of documents. That's why I like to say, uh, old, you know, when we're talking about the Old Testament, old, let's turn to the Old Covenant documents, and we're talking about the New Testament, the, the New Covenant documents, because that's what they are. Old Covenant documents, New Covenant documents. Old Testament's relating to the Old Covenant, New Testament's relating to the New Covenant. These are the New Covenant documents that God has given His people. All right. I say all that because I want us to be convinced of the importance of this book. That this has always been God's plan to give his people a book. It's not out of sheer um, circ um, coincidence or the advance of technology that we have a bound copy of Scripture. I believe as you study how God has dealt with his people throughout Scripture, throughout history, that this was God's plan all along to provide his people with a bound, full, written, revelation that we could have, and now we each have one. In fact, now we each have multiples of them. And now you have them on their phone, which I don't know what I think about that, but no, it's, it's fine. Because <laughs> ultimately what's most important is not even really the material, it's the text. That's what's most important. Not the material, but the text. And we have the text. And, uh, but that was, I believe, God's plan all along. And so I just want us to see what a treasure that the Scripture is. I want you to have confidence in the Word of God. I want you to have confidence in this written Word uh, so that you can grow thereby. If we have doubts, if we're unsure, if we're just not convinced of the centrality or the authority or the inerrancy or the inspiration of Scripture, then we're going to be tossed to and fro in our spiritual lives. There's just no two ways around it. A, a, a Christian who is having a hard time believing this Word will be a weak Christian. Just That's the way it is, spiritually weak tossed to and fro, blown um, from every wind and wave uh, of doctrine, okay?
Okay, so that's my goal, and that's why I did all that as an introduction. Any questions about that brief introduction before we move on? Okay, it's another reason why, so I'm not suggesting that these Christian books are inspired, but it's one of the reasons why I think you see in the history of Christianity, wherever Christianity has flourished, you know what else has flourished? Literacy, writing, teaching. Christianity is a word-based faith, a word-based religion. It is all about the written word. And God's, God's concern to preserve truth in writing naturally flows into a culture of Christians who want to preserve truth through writing, which is why they, from the very beginning, where Christianity was, has flourished, so has publishing, so has writing, so has teaching. It's just, it just exploded. In fact, um, the only real time that Christians have ever been ahead of the techno technological game was likely when uh, the, the book, our current form of the book, where, which, where you have leaves sewn and bound together like this, uh, was probably originated by Christians so they could keep all of their uh, books in one bound place and not just have multiple scrolls all over the place. They called it a codex, or it was called a codex, uh, or I, I think it was given that name later retroactively, retrospectively. But anyways, this idea of putting them all together flat like this and then binding it so you have ready and quick access likely was the uh, creation of, of Christians. And why is that? Well, because preserving truth in written form was utterly crucial, not only in the, the life of God's people throughout uh, redemptive history, but then after that, you can see how useful it became. And so Christians became people of, of books and of writing and of, of, of teaching and so on. And still to this day, right? So, let's look at Psalm 19 now. So, chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, that was all about universal revelation. God has revealed himself in the creation, particularly in the heavens, in the stars, and in the sun, specifically. And the sun shows us what about God? What glory, particular glory of God does the sun display? He's happy. He's happy. Blazingly happy. And... Um, but the point is, is that the, the glory of God is declared from the heavens in that everybody under every circumstance, in every location, at every point in history, at every moment, has access to, and not only access to, but is receiving revelation from God. So that a person can look up and know that God exists, and know that He is powerful, know that He's... Happy, potentially? Now, the problem with that is that because we're sinful, we don't interpret universal revelation. We don't interpret that revelation the right way. That's an that's a, uh, issue for another time. But the point that the psalmist is saying is, nevertheless, regardless of our perception of it, though it may be skewed, nevertheless, it is constantly being declared. God's glory is constantly being declared. And that's the point of 
verses 1 through 6. And theologians have made a distinction here between what they've called general and special revelation, general revelation being in the creation, special revelation now being when God reveals himself specifically to people or to a person or to a group of people that in that revelation only they are privy to, the whole world isn't. Okay? So that would be called special or particular redemption, particular revelation. I prefer the words universal revelation and particular revelation. I think they're more uh, clear in what they're trying to convey. Verse 7, now we're launching into David's reflection on the nature of Scripture. Now when he says the law of the Lord, what is he thinking of? What does he have in mind? What Scripture is he thinking of? Likely just the Mosaic law at this point. First five books of Moses, okay? Because, you know, uh, other things are currently being written, but at this point, the law of the Lord is referring to the, the five books of Moses, most likely. And when he instructs and exhorts his son Solomon to obey that law, that's precisely what he's referring to. Moses's five books, the law of the Lord. What's the first thing he says about the law of the Lord? He says that it's perfect. It's perfect. Now, this word throughout Old Testament means blameless. Uh, it can have to do with wholeness, sincerity, integrity, right, on a human level. It can refer to humans. So Noah is said to be blameless. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It's the word that's used to refer to the condition of the lamb that was to be slaughtered. Lamb that was to be sacrificed, they unblemished. That's the word here. They're supposed to be perfect, unblemished. No blemish on that lamb. Integrity, sincerity, wholeness, unblemished, blameless. Now, I did say it's used to refer to men, people, who have God has designated as blameless. And you might be thinking, wait, 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 hold on. No, Derek, I know Noah. I know he was not blameless. I know that story about the drunkenness. I know all about that. And then I would say, let me make it worse for you. Uh, David is called blameless by God himself. Um, let's see if I can find this verse here. Uh, where is it at? Uh, why didn't I write it down? You know, I do that sometimes. I forget to write things down. Let's see here. If I, maybe I wrote it down back here. Might have written in. Yeah, I did. Okay. Ah, yes. Um, maybe I didn't. Ah. Page 10. Lots of notes. Uh, okay. This is God speaking to Solomon. Uh, and as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Whoa, what? Um, and the problem, of course, with that is you're thinking, well, David committed some pretty heinous stuff. Adultery and murder. Uh, God assesses his life not ba on the basis of two sinful incidents, but on the basis of his whole life, right? On, on the whole, David was 
a believer in God. He loved God. He, in, in comparison to other men and other nations and other kings, he obeyed the Lord, loved the Lord, uh, obeyed his law, and so on. And so in that sense, he was blameless. Um, but you do need to make a distinction between how this word is used with regard to sinful men, sinful people, and how it is used with God, because this word is also used with regard to God. For example, Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. Deuteronomy 32.4. Remember, we're talking about this word blameless. We'll start in verse 1. Give ear, this is back to the Song of Moses, that God told him to write down. Uh, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like the showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Now, does anyone want to suggest that when blamelessness or perfection is ascribed to God, that we mean, yeah, kind of like Moses or David, there's some imperfection there, but overall God's a good guy. Is that what we mean? Well, no, we know that that's blasphemous. We know that when He says here, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. We know that's absolute. God is without sin, right? So when we ascribe blamelessness to him, we mean an utter, an absolute blamelessness. And we can't use that same kind of blamelessness when we're ascribing it to uh, a human because we know that we are uh, sinful. So I think here when you're referring to the law of the Lord, it's right to take it in the sense of this absolute perfection because it is the word of God's very mouth. It's his law. It's, a, it's the overflow. It's the outflow of his very character so that you can't suggest, well, Derek, you know, maybe, maybe the law of the Lord is blameless like David was blameless. There were some, there were some errors there in his life, but overall he's, it's, he's legit. And some have taken that very argument and said, yes, Derek, overall the scripture is inspired and it's authoritative and it's good, but there are some minor deficiencies in it. And I would say that argument doesn't work precisely because that word is applied to God. And when it is applied to God, it's applied in an absolute way. And therefore, it can be used in an absolute way. This word blameless can be used in an absolute way. And I think it's very natural and right for us to then therefore ascribe to the law of the Lord that same blamelessness. I don't think you can draw a, uh, or create a disconnect between God's word and God himself to say that God can be blameless, but his word may have some minor flaws in it. And it's funny because as you read books of professing evangelicals who try to make that point, they have to spin themselves in illogical circles because you can't make that point. How do you say that Scripture is God-breathed and yet the God who cannot lie has breathed out air? Well, you can try some pretty fanciful-sounding, sophisticated-sounding arguments that just don't make any sense at all at the end of the day because you can't reconcile those two claims. Right? So I believe here when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, blameless, 
it means in an absolute sense that there is no imperfection in it. There can't be. It, the word means whole, complete, without blemish, lacking in, without anything lacking. When it comes to blemishes on that lamb, it meant absolutely no blemishes whatsoever. It had to be, it had to be perfect. And so I think here you, can, you, can, you must apply that same sense to God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect. That which God has spoken and inspired and breathed out into a written word is perfect. And for that reason, therefore, it revives the soul. So here's what it is and here's what it does. That's going to be the pattern as you work through this passage. It revives the soul. Now, interestingly, I, just, I had to do this because I, I knew this, but I had to remind myself again. This word, revive, most of the time, I'm going to just, I didn't look at every single use because there's like hundreds of uses of this word in the Bible, but most of the time, in just my brief excursus into looking this up, most of the time it refers to a physical turning or returning. So I went to this city and then I returned to this city. That's what that word means, this word re that's translated revives here. So what other translations do you guys, I have revive, some of you might have restore. Do you have that? Do you have restore, revive? Restoring the soul. Most often, this word is used to refer to a physical turning. And occasionally it's used as a uh, turning in repentance. And only a handful of times, and even in these times, it seems like it could be uh, a turning or a returning, either in a physical sense or a, a, rip, a metaphorical repentance sense. Um, ver, uh, Psalm 23, he restores my soul, that's the same word, but there even then it could be a turning, and here's what I mean. It, and, and this is not just me, this is other interpreters. It seems that David could mean two kind of twin things here, or that in saying that the law of the Lord is perfect and it, it revives the soul, what it's saying is that it turns the soul in repentance. The law of the Lord is perfect and it turns the soul, and you can say, you can definitely say it revives the soul because what does repentance do? It's the most reviving thing in, in our Christian experience. Repentance brings life and health and joy. And so in that sense, if that's what the emphasis is here, is, is it, it restores or turns the, the soul, uh, then it can, it can very well mean both things. That in it turning you, it restores, it refreshes, Right? And that's often how I think Scripture works, that there's conviction, it's humble, it humbles us, and it, in that way, refreshes us. I mean, some of the best experiences I've had in God's Word is when it's just hammered me and just convicted me and just laid me low in tears, and then I, and then I come back and I'm like, well, that was refreshing, right? And people might, on the outside, look like, you're crazy. And I'm like, no, like, that's, that's, the way, that's the way it works. And I, so I get this. I, I think that there is something to be said about that, that, that this word means a turning, but it can also be in that it is totally right to say restores because that's what repentance is and that's what God's word is doing. And that's exactly why we need it so often. We need it in here. Come to this class. You're going to go to church. You're going to hear it again. You're going to hear it again this week as you get together in your small groups. You're going to listen to a podcast. You're going to listen to a sermon, whatever. And we need this constant restoring, returning, even daily, because we need that constant 
return our reminder to repent and to confess our sins and so on. So I, I think uh, I don't think there's any conflict here at all. I think it can very well mean that returning, that re- repenting, and that in that it restores us. Even in Psalm 23:3, you know, you look at this. Psalm 23, 3, he says, He restores my soul. Same word. He, maybe he turns my soul in the kind of repentance kind of sense. And then that would make sense because then he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Right? I'm going down a path. And no, 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 no. Down this path. Right? Correcting. Restoring. Turning. And in that sense, the most restorative place I can be is in God's will, in God's word correcting and bringing that about. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And only a perfect word can do that, right? If there's doubt, hesitation, then it, you can't have that effect. Um, was David refreshed when Nathan came to him with a word from the Lord? Yes, ultimately he was. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. It was brutal, it was tough. And then he was fully restored. In fact, prior to that, he was in uh, not only spiritual uh, depths of, uh, of uh, spiritual depths, but also physical physical problems were were as a re- coming as a result of his spiritual issues, his lack of repentance. Okay. Next thing it is called. It's called the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. This word refers to warning signs, statutes, and this is the way one interpreter uh, understands this verse. Someone who is well adept in the Hebrew language says, quote, Like a highway sign notifying drivers of winding roads or treacherous conditions ahead, the Torah, that's the reference to the the law, five books of Moses, is is provided to warn the faithful of dangerous and slippery conditions that confront them. Testimony, statutes, warning signs. And uh, this is, this is, I love this. this. This might be one of my favorite verses in the Bible as it pertains to the nature of Scripture. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Now this word here is for simple. It's not referring to, like in the Proverbs, the fool. This is the, the naive, this is the young naive person who just doesn't have much knowledge of the way things work in the world. Okay, just someone who just doesn't have a lot of knowledge. Okay, whatever, however that came about. And the scripture, because it is sure, this word sure uh, means proved to be reliable. The NIV translates it as trustworthy. Because you can trust this word to be true and sure and lead you in the right direction, a simple person without much education or much experience can actually be wise about the way the world works and they can make their way through life and navigate life in a way that is fruitful and beneficial for them and brings glory to God and is a blessing to others. And I just love this because you could be someone who only has an 8th grade education and have more wisdom and insight into life and, and more, of a, and, and more uh, success in dealing with relationships and the various aspects of your life and, and handling money and worshiping God and fellowshipping with the saints. Uh, someone with just an 8th grade education can have infinite amount of wisdom beyond someone who has a PhD in biblical studies but never applies what he's learned. I just love that. You, you run into people 
who have very little formal education, yet know God and know His Word and know wisdom, that their mind is, is fresh and active. And Why? Because of this, because of the Word. It's, it's sure. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And so it doesn't matter how much education you have, right? I, just, I think it's a beautiful picture of this simple person. They, just, they begin, they don't, know, they don't have much in terms of the world's education. They don't have much experience, and yet they grasp a hold of this, and it's a sure word, and now they grow and have wisdom. Pretty beautiful thing, I think. Um, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure. So let's look at the, the phrase, the precepts of the Lord are right. These refer to statutes, instruction, or appointments, as in appointing you to something, to do something. Um, that's, that's what this word means here. Uh, and they are right. This word here, yashar, means straight. In other words, it will not lead astray. And the idea here uh, is that these precepts are morally right. Now, there's discussion of ethics and morality all the time in our contemporary culture. How do we know what's right? How do we know uh, what is wrong? And so on. And the point here is that God's law is right. Now, David's just referring to Moses' writings. But of course, the point here is made with reference to God's Word. So these statements about God's Word are applicable to the whole of God's Word, okay? not just the law. And they are right, meaning morally right. And for that reason, they rejoice the heart. The, the reason why we love the Word of God is because we see in it good, wholesome, wise laws and rules and instructions. Right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't lead us astray. It tells us what is truly good for mankind. Whether it is in the realm of relationships, sexuality, uh, worship, whatever it might be, it tells us what is truly right. And therefore, it rejoices the heart. It brings true joy to the heart. Why? Because its instructions are acting in perfect correspondence with the way that you were made to live in this life. There's, an, there's no inherent conflict between God's instructions and the way you were made. You look at current trends in our society regarding gender and sexuality, and you have the destruction, the, re, the, the celebration of people destroying their bodies due to a uh, a sense that they have that they are the wrong gender. And the reason why that is so horrific is because they are acting in a way that is completely contrary to the way they were made. Whereas, Scripture leads you in a path and instructs you in a way that is in perfect correspondence with the way that you were made. Perfect correspondence. So if it rejoices the heart, Right? Brings joy. Um, the commandment of the Lord is pure. NIV says radiant. ESV says pure. NASB says pure. Uh, 
Psalm 12, 6, the words of the, Lord's, words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. No imperfection, no corruption, nothing wrong in it. It's pure, right? The picture here is of purifying a precious metal. And, you, and they, uh, well, you still do it this way, just fan, more fancy equipment. But in, in David's day, it's just done in a furnace. You put the precious metal in the furnace, burns up all the dross so that what you get out is something pure, pure silver, pure gold, no imperfections. And that's what Scripture is. Uh, historically, some confessions of faith have said that Scripture contains truth with no admixture of, of error. I like that. It sounds a little old-fashioned. But all it means is there's, there's, it's not alloyed with anything. There's no mixture of error in together with that, that gold. There's no in-mixture in, in of, of uh, some other metal or some other imperfection in together with that gold. That has all been burned off, and now what you have is that perfect piece of gold. That's what... The word of no admixture of error, no error in that, that word. Okay? And for that reason, it can enlighten the eyes. Now, here, eyes obviously means more than just physical eyes, it means spiritual eyes. But only a pure word without imperfections can enlighten the eyes, can give instruction, can enable understanding into the way things really are. If you have a, a word that has error mixed with it and you have to discern, okay, that part I'll take and that part I'll take that's not going to have the enlightening effect that, that the Word of God does. We are running out of time. How did we run out of time? Is it because of spring forward? Does the time go faster after March 12th? I don't know. It's probably my fault. Um, we are, I do want to, I do, well... I don't want to run through stuff here. Uh, are you guys okay finishing up Psalm 19 next week and going into Psalm 22? That's, what I, that's what's next, Psalm 22. So we just need a few more minutes to Psalm 19. Then I'll, so you can bring your sheets back. I'll make a new sheet for Psalm 22. We'll go Psalm 19, finish it up a few minutes, and then Psalm 22 next week, which is a pretty powerful psalm. So you can read that this week in preparation, Psalm 22. Any questions before we go? Anything that I've said that needs to be clarified? Because my words are not pure words, purified seven times. I try my best. But Yes, Crystal. So when it talks about the precepts mm -hmm. um, and the testimony of the Lord, it's mostly referring to things that we would already find in Scripture? It is referring exclusively to things that we find in Scripture. It's only referring to that. Now, there are things that God has spoken that are not recorded in the Scripture. That He spoke to Israel. Uh, what we do have in Scripture is what He wanted us to have written. The, when He is talking about law of the Lord, testimony, precepts, commandment, um, rules, verse 9, He is referring exclusively to the written Word of God, specifically the first five books of Moses. That's what, he, that's what, that's what would have been published, so to speak, at that point. That's what had been, had been received as scripture at that point, um, authoritative scripture. So, yes, exclusively law. This is the written word. Good question. Are these words? Yeah. Of the testimony, precepts, commandments, 
judgments, they are all, why do they use distinguished words? Yeah, so um, the, for example, the uh, testimony nuance, the uh, connotation and the nuance there is warning sign or statutes. Um, the law, that's Torah, that's uh, referring to the kind of the instruction, commandment side, but also with reference to the whole of it. So it's referring to the whole collection of of all everything that's included, not just the specific instructions, because in within the if we're just taking the law of most, we're just taking the first five books. There are clear instructions in there, but that's not all there is in there. There's songs and there's um, statements about God and who He is and what He's done and so on. So what each one is doing is giving a, a nuanced description of all that's included in God's Word. You have testimonies, which are warning signs or statutes. You have precepts, which are instructions or, or even appointments, namely appointing you to do something, telling you to do something. As we'll see, um, the rules, uh, those are ordinances, which is a legal term, which is probably referring to all the legal stuff in the, the law uh, pertaining to property rights and you know all that stuff. Um, so that's why it, each one is referring to a different aspect of God's word, and he's rejoicing over every single aspect. There's nothing in there. So I think you could, you could rewrite Psalm 19 today if you wanted to, although I wouldn't recommend it. No, if you were, if you were to rewrite it today, you could, you, know, you could talk about the, um, now that we have all the revelation, you could talk about the Proverbs of the Lord and the the poetry of the Lord and these kinds of things, uh, be, um, the, the letters, whatever, right? Because we have all this various different kind of genre, and um, that's what he's doing as he's reflecting on just those five books because that's all he had. So, so no, don't, don't, uh, don't rewrite Psalm 19 today. That's, that's not the application. I can just see you guys leaving. Now, Derek said... Anything else? All right, let me pray for you guys, and then you're free to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, your law, your word is perfect. Uh, it revives our soul. It rejoices our heart. It makes us wise. It's good. It's wholesome. Everything about it is true and trustworthy and good. We do ask for your help to rightly interpret it, that it would be... Uh, rightly understood and that then we would apply it well, that we would be careful that we don't misapply it. I pray that you would help each person here do that in their personal lives, but also not just merely privately, but relying upon uh, the church and fellowship with one another. And as we have conversation and discussion and uh, of the word, and as we sit under its teaching, we learn and apply it well. And we ask you do this work for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday, and if you have any questions, please feel free to come and talk to me.